I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's good, everybody? Happy Monday. It's Happy Monday. It was very sad Sunday, but we're going to get into it. We're going to look for the positives. We're also going to touch on the negatives because we'd be lying if we didn't. As usual, on a Monday, I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manikis. Greg, I keep saying your surname. I'm not sure if I'm hitting it right. Is that right? It's actually Manikis. It's Lithuanian for the people out there that are listening. That's why I'm a good shooter. Um, but everybody has mispronounced my name my entire life. Uh, so Manikis is definitely one of the most common ways to mispronounce my name. And especially just because I like you and your personality, when you say it, it I, I feel like it's almost like a nickname. Like, you know, my name isn't pronounced Manikis, but you call me, uh, it isn't pronounced Manikis, but you call me it because it's like, you know, like uh, that shows that we're becoming closer as friends. <laughs> so it's Manikis, right? Manikis, Manikis, but keep saying Manikis. I like it. Okay. So I'm joined by Greg Manikis. <laughs> um <laughs> The Celtics, if anyone's living under a rock or have decided that they're just done with the regular season, not that I could blame you in any way, shape or form. The Celtics are basically embroiled in a mini two-game series against the Miami Heat. The first of those two games took place on Sunday in a matinee, and we know how the Celtics have been on matinees this year. Some have been good, but the majority have been bad, and they lost. Big shock, the Celtics lost. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think we should start off with Let's start with the negative so we can get to the happier stuff, okay. right? And then we can look ahead to game two. So for me, the biggest negative in that first half of the game was just the sheer lack of perimeter ball pressure. They just were not pressuring the ball on the perimeter, and it made for some really easy looks for the the Heat. I thought that the Celtics in general were quite slow to rotate over. They didn't switch with intensity. They were switching. I think some of the switches were what you'd classify as a soft switch, where you switch before you really need to switch. But in general, it was just a lack of execution. I think they came in prepared, but they didn't execute. Yeah, and the biggest problem was that Kemba was getting attacked, right? I think that the ball pressure on the outside was definitely an issue. But we weren't prepared for them to target Kemba in the post. And we we definitely ran some double teams in, in the first half and then just lost track of shooters. They did some great they did a great job inverting their offense. Um, I thought Brad made a great adjustment in the second half, but he should have made that adjustment in the first half. And the adjustment was getting Kemba off of anybody that could post him up in the second half. He spent more of his time on the shooters on the perimeter and less of his time on the Arizas of the world who could just bring him into the post and play over the top of him. So the the biggest issue for me was that Stevens wasn't quick enough to see what was happening and make that adjustment in real time. Um, he had to like go back into the locker room to do it. So I, I don't know what you thought about that, but you know the ball pressure to me has been an issue all year. In today's game, that was the one thing that was you, you know unique to this game that I thought was the biggest issue. Yeah, I mean, for me, like you say, like the way that they were hunting Campbell Walker, in a way, I'm kind of happy about that because it's going to force Brad Stevens and force the Celtics to understand that, hey, we're getting close to where the postseason begins mm. and Campbell Walker is always going to be the target for an offense. Yeah. So figuring out how to deal with that now 
when to throw doubles to try and help scram Kemba out of there, when to let Kemba kind of just have to deal with it, and most importantly, how to scheme Kemba away from being a target. I think all three of those things, the Celtics kind of iterated through throughout the first, and then obviously they settled on moving him away from being a target in the second half of the game as much as they could. But it's definitely going to be a learning curve. I feel like the Celtics really got hurt by that, by Miami especially, last year in the playoffs. Miami have come back into this and kind of just said, well, we know this works, so we're going to keep doing it until Boston changed the way they're defending us and we can't do it no more. Um, I'm happy that the Celtics are kind of getting pulled up on that position, like that area of their defense because it's something that they need to figure out. And Stevens had to figure it out with Isaiah Thomas. Um, you know, to a lesser extent, he had to figure it out with Kyrie. And now he's going to have to figure that stuff out with Kemba. But in general, like just in terms of on-ball pressure, um, like execution and pride, if we're being quite honest, just playing with a bit of pride. Uh, I just don't think they had it. I don't think they came in realizing how quickly Miami were going to want to punch them in the mouth. And for Miami, this game was just as important as it is for Boston. Uh, both teams are trying to stay out of that seeding, that playing tournament. Uh, so I think that overall, I think Boston as a team are starting games very naive. Yeah, and what do you chalk that up to? You know, of, of all the fire Brad people out there, um, I, I'm not a fire Brad person, but that to me might be an issue with Brad and like the way that he's trying to prepare his guys for that first quarter. Um, I know he's not the king of the rah-rah speech, but there's got to be something out there that can get the team motivated. If you're not going to be motivated to play Celtics basketball for 48 minutes on Tommy freaking Heinsohn day, then when are you going to be motivated to play at the beginning of the game? I mean, like it doesn't make any sense to me to see the Celtics day after day, game after game coming out, not Focused. When you lose Duncan Robinson in transition like three times in the first half, that's a focus thing. I don't know if that's a Brad thing or if you, if you just put that on the players, but it's an issue. And we got to figure out more ways to get these guys locked in at the beginning of the game. I don't know if you got to do some woo-saw stuff, some like team meditation before the game or whatever it is, man. But there needs to be something that needs to change to get these guys to have a different result in the first quarter especially with with our guy JT. You know, the, the game JT had 60, he was the only guy that came out and played hard on both ends of the court in the first quarter of the game. And we just kind of really haven't seen that full 48 out of Tatum since the 60-point game. Um, so I, I'm wondering what you're thinking about that. What do you chalk that up to? Yeah, I think Brad Stevens in his post-game presser actually said that the majority of that falls on him. And I'd agree. Like, um, I remember speaking to a player recently um, who was a former NBA champion and asking him, like, what would you expect from a head coach? If you could pinpoint one thing that is solely falls on a head coach, not their assistants, not the players, what would it be? And he told me it's motivation. Like, obviously, the coach has far more to do than just that. But in terms of the one specific area that doesn't fall on his um, supporting cast of coaches or doesn't fall on the leadership of other players. It's being able to light that fire under guys. Now, look, I am a huge Brad Stevens guy. Any people that want him fired now, uh, you're completely entitled to your opinion. My outlook on it is that you shouldn't fire a guy based off performances in a season where nothing mm -hmm. has been normal and nothing has gone expected, injuries and so forth. We're not here to make excuses right now. But I do think that 
there is a world where there's a lot to be desired in his ability to motivate a team and whether that's because he's too soft-spoken he well from what the players have said in post-game presses throughout the season is brad that you see on the sideline is not the same stevens that you see in the locker room so maybe he just doesn't want to portray that anger like or portray that fire in front of the cameras because he wants to you know he has this persona of a cool calm collected coach and that's what's worked up to this point but i definitely think that there's some something there that needs to be altered or developed in Stevens to be able to say to these guys like hey you guys need to go out there and you need to go for the kill if you um cast your mind back to the third quarter against uh, in this game against Miami as soon as the game started or the fourth sorry two minutes into the fourth quarter Boston have got hot and they're going on a run again Spolstra called a timeout and that he did that strategically to kill that momentum that the Celtics were building and then he lit a fire under his guys to kind of say, look, we can let this slip away. We don't see that from Stevens. We don't see him not humiliate his guys, but basically put them on notice, right? Like, look, you guys are playing trash right now. I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to chew you out in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And you better go out there and do your jobs. And I just think that's one area of his persona and his coaching ability that does need development. What I've noticed out of Brad is that he tends to coach the younger guys a little bit more harshly in public, right? You don't see him chewing out a veteran too often, Um, but you hear him. And I remember early on in Jalen Brown's career, right? The moment Jalen Brown made a mistake on the defensive end, he just would yell, Jalen! And then he would rip him off the court. And you, you hear him calling out people's name and like throwing his clipboard down on the ground more for the younger guy, like if Neesmith makes a mistake or if Pritchard makes a mistake, but you don't necessarily see him coaching Marcus Smart that way anymore. You don't see him coaching Jason Tatum that way anymore. And I think that's a necessary thing to do as a coach. You know, you want to um, praise in public and, you know, punish in private. Um, it, you know, punish is probably the wrong word, but um, that's kind of the, the philosophy that I think a lot of coaches have. But at some point you need to make, you need to make a point and call out your best player because if your best player can't handle public criticism, then like what sort of message does that send to the rest of the team? Because if you're not going to hold him accountable, you're going to hold me accountable, so on and so forth, and it just snowballs. Um, but I think Brad does do a, a good job with managing personalities in that sense. But at some at, at some point, you got to you got to be okay calling out a guy on the sideline, ripping him off the court. You know, Jalen Brown has been terrible with his off-ball defense. Every once in a while, maybe pull him off the court, sit him down for five minutes. And I think that's important. He actually did that to um, Thompson uh, the other night, right, when Tristan had – when he went like ISO four possessions in a row, whatever it was, um, you know, with with his chances on offense. And he sat him down in favor of Cornette or Grant, I think it was, towards the end of that game. So, you know, he – he does have it in him to bench guys. I just would like to see him do it a little bit more quickly. Look, the time I want to say here, and it's not the right way, it's basically showing that not every... Like, I understand... How can I premise, premise this? Okay, so I understand that you have to chew out the younger guys more because they need less rope because they're more prone to making con- considerable mistakes than what some of the vets are. They're just more... The vets are just more savvy to the nuances of what's going to happen game to game. So they Mm -hmm. get that little bit more leeway. But at the same time, if I'm at work and I'm the new guy and you're chewing me out, but then this guy that's been here five years is making similar mistakes to me and you're not pulling him up the same way, that starts to breed contempt and it starts to make the 
the veterans believe that you know we're not going to get pulled up we're above um ad- admonishment and reproach for our performances at least in the public light and i do agree i think sometimes being called out and being chewed out like that lights a fire and as you said if your best players getting chewed out then now everybody has to hold themselves accountable I'm not saying that I want somebody screaming and shouting on the sideline because I just don't think that helps. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm really not a fan of Nick Nurse. It's just mm-hmm. the way he carries himself as a coach during games. I don't like that. Uh, I find it very distracting. I find it very irritating. But in general, that kind of method- methodology, uh, on occasion, when used sparingly, could have a really big effect. Definitely. And I, I think it was Greg Popovich... It, it may have been Steve Kerr talking about Greg Popovich, but just discussing the way that Popovich coached Tim Duncan and coached Tony Parker and coached Manu Ginobili, he was always like notoriously hard on Manu. Popovich would like Manu, Manu would drive Popovich crazy, and Popovich would you know, pull him out of games and chew him out all the time. And he, you know, he, I think that's what made Duncan such a special player is that Popovich he allowed Popovich to coach him. And I, I think that Brad, I don't know what it is about him that he just won't do it in public. He won't do it. And I don't know if it's some advice he got coming in from college, if he was like extra sensitive, if he, you know, somebody told him like, hey, in the NBA, it's not the same as college. You got to do it a little differently. I wasn't as familiar with the way that he coached um, his players in college, but it, it seems to me that he, at some point, the switch is going to go on. I just hope it goes on with the Celtics and not, you know, with another team. If, if all the public pressure um, gets to Danny Ainge and he decides to fire Brad Stevens, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, definitely not this year in the offseason, no matter how bad the Celtics do towards the end of the season here. But I don't want to see Brad Stevens figure it out with the second team that he coaches. I want to see him figure it out, fully formed Brad Stevens with the Boston Celtics. So do you want to know one thing, and then we'll, then we'll move on from Stevens, but this is one thing that I've been considering recently. Everybody's focused on what the the playing roster lacks. Everyone's focused on, oh, well, you know, you lost Hayward. You didn't really have anyone until Fournier came. There's a lot of mm-hmm. young guys, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at, like, and I've said this before, like Kyra Dawson leaving and how much of a negative effect that had on the coaching ability of the staff. But Going back further than that, I think it was Mitch Shrewsbury was originally Brad Stevens. Is it Mitch? Micah. Micah, that was it. Micah, see, it's been a while. But Micah Shrewsbury (laughs) was originally Brad Stevens' right-hand man. And then you go from Micah to Kara Dawson, effectively. It didn't go that seamlessly, but Kara kind of came in as Micah's replacement. Once Kara Lawson leaves, you don't replace her. You don't replace that voice, that respected voice of somebody that's one basket like throughout their career at a very high basketball level you bring in evan turner with no coaching experience basically in an ambassadorial role and now you're running with probably the most inexperienced in terms of basketball throughout their careers um coaching roster in the league i mean i've i've ran this down before but there isn't a single person on that coaching staff outside of turner that's had any form of high level basketball experience in their career most of them were d3 college players or they played over in Europe for a hot minute. I think at certain points you need somebody like Carver Dawson that when they chew you out, you know it's coming from a place of experience and it's coming from, hey, when I was playing, there's no way I would have stood for this on the floor, so you better not keep playing like this because somebody needs to start holding people accountable. 
So I think that maybe we could see um, an experienced assistant kind of step up from college who's maybe got some experience in the NBA as a player or maybe there's got to be another coaching addition there just to kind of help enhance Brad's voice and pass messages on to players during timeouts that maybe Brad doesn't want to be seen to be saying. But an assistant doing that chewing out, if they've got the respect of the locker room, could work just as well. And maybe that's just what they need is just a Dr. Jekyll um, Jekyll and Hyde type of approach there. I like that. I like that. I haven't really considered that. Um, and I, I haven't thought about the, the loss of Kyle uh, Lawson and how that might affect the team. I don't know who, who the answer would be there. Um, so I, I don't really have any thoughts for you on that at this moment. But if you want to talk about the uh, recent additions to the roster, I'm down, man, because my man Evan Fournier is looking good. Yeah. So I, what, what, what are you seeing out of Fournier? Man, his movement shooting is so good. Like, um, being able to just peel off screens and then rise up and hit um, straight off the pull-up has been great. Uh, his craftiness around the rim. He's a legit three-level scorer. He's a legit playmaker as well. Um, I think they read the scouting report because Fournier was doing a lot of damage from the slot, which is just in between the wing and the corner. For anybody that's not um, aware of where that is, you go, um, sorry, it's not. It's between the wing and the perimeter. So you've got the top of the perimeter, then you've got the wing, and that bit in the middle is the slot. Uh, you saw Fournier doing a lot of work there. I thought he did great. Honestly, I think he was probably the Boston's best player in this game, and he's been one of their best players for probably two or three games at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm really liking what I'm seeing out of him on the defensive end, too. I, for some reason, I thought he was like 6'4", I and mean, he's like a legit 6'7". The way that he was able to guard Jimmy Butler at times spoke volumes to the versatility that I think he has. Because if you think back to the playoffs last year, we didn't have anybody that could match Butler's physicality Marcus Smart is the guy that we try to throw at him, but Jimmy Butler is just like the next evolution of Marcus Smart. You know, he's like the superstar, supercharged version of Marcus Smart. He is the super shredder Marcus Smart. So when you throw a uh, regular shredder against super shredder, it, it, it doesn't really work out that well. I thought Marcus played okay against Jimmy today. I thought his physicality bothered Butler in some degree. But that couple plays where Fournier switched out onto Butler, he does a great job of getting uh, under people and getting into their legs and he you know he he plays great positional defense as well and i think his feet are finally out of the mud when he came back from covid his feet were just in the mud he looked like kendrick perkins trying to move his feet out there but now he he's moving his feet well he's got really active hands and he's a smart positional defender so i'm i'm, I'm liking what i'm seeing out of fournier the one thing he probably still needs to work on is just getting used to the rotations and communication with the other guys on the court but just in terms of being able to guard his position and when it matters, can we throw him on, you know, on the Jimmy Butlers of the world in a playoff series? I think it's going to potentially make a difference because I, I think he 100% needs to be in the closing five and playing 30 to 35 minutes a game with the impact that he's having. I mean, I want to premise this by just saying as a man with Ninja Turtle tattoos, I absolutely adore the fact that you use Shredder and Super <laughs> Shredder as, a, as an analogy there. It fits right in with... Uh, the Ninja Turtle theme of my life. So I'm very happy with that. I love it. Outside of that, I think you're right. I think his feet are definitely out the mud. Defensively, he was sound. I don't think he was exceptional. I think he was one of the better defenders on a team that had a bunch of bad defensive performances individually and collectively. For me, it's just getting, as you said, it's just getting used to the timing of switches, when to communicate, when not to switch. They spoke about it after they played Chicago where they were late to Vias. And I think that they were a lot better 
when veering on defense this game. I think Evan Fournier made a point of saying they need to be better about that during his presser after the Chicago loss. I still think they need to develop more there. Uh, for a team without size, if you're veering, you need to do it quite quickly just to be able to get under that big and stop them getting into a rebounding position or a position where they can just kind of drop step around you. But Evan Fournier definitely feels like he understands the defensive concepts that Brad Stevens is trying to implement. And I feel like he's kind of one of the guys that's bought in quickest out of the new additions we've seen in the last few years defensively. I love, and I mean, I love the tandem of Kemba and Fournier and what they're doing when they're on the floor together. The way they move off off of each other, and we spoke about this before, there's a difference between playing together and playing off of each other. And the way to win is to learn how to play off of each other's gravities. I think that that development there is going to be huge in the playoffs. I, I, I honestly am starting to say that I would much rather it be a Kemba, Fournier, um, Brown, Tatum, Rob Williams starting five at this point just because of the scoring versatility we're seeing when those type of guys are sharing the floor. As Brad's, um, sorry, as Brian Scalabrine calls them, they are multi-skilled players, multi-skilled scorers, and there's a bunch of them. Unfortunately, they're just not multi-skilled defensive pieces at the moment, and that's where the biggest amount of growth is going to have to happen in the shortest amount of time. But you're advocating right now for all Celtics fans out there to move Marcus Smart to the bench. You know you're going to get a lot of heat for this, Adam. People have been coming at you on Twitter. You really want to move Marcus Smart to the bench and uh, risk the wrath of Celtics Twitter? Honestly, I think you accentuate his um, talents and negate his flaws more running him as a sixth man than you do putting him in that starting lineup. You need Marcus Smart to basically be a... Um, a free and D playmaking point guard. That's all you need from him. And the frees need to be very minimal, you know, six to seven a game. I'm I'm kind of okay with that number there. Uh, but yeah, I think bringing him off the bench helps steady everything else. And it helps add some more fluidity to that starting five, because at the moment they're slow starts. Uh, what was it in the last three games in a row? They've allowed 70 points in the first half of games. Something needs mm. to change and maybe moving smart to the sixth man. I'm not saying give him give him a minutes reduction. I'm just saying mm. give him a role change and see yeah. what and you know, we're seeing the Fournier and Kemba tandem work. So why would you go back to something that you struggled to bear fruit with all year when now you found something that's clicking? Unfortunately, it, Marcus Smart's paid like a six man, so he should be playing as a six man. Yeah, and you also have to think like bringing Fournier onto this team. I don't know Evan Fournier enough to say that Evan Fournier is not used to coming off the bench, but I feel like he's been a starter for a majority of his career. I think maybe early on with the Nuggets, he was coming off the bench, but most of his time with Orlando, I'm pretty sure he was the starter and like pretty firmly cemented as a starter. Marcus Smart recently became a starter. You know, up until last year, Marcus was coming off the bench. So he's more used to that role. And it's really just like, Marcus, are you willing to, you know, sacrifice your ego and come off the bench again? Maybe that's something that Marcus doesn't want to do because of, you know, his impending uh, free agency within, what is it? I, I can't remember if it's this summer or next summer, but, it's you know, next. yeah, next summer. But at some point, Marcus Smart wants to get paid like a starter, right? He's getting paid like a six man, as you said. So he, he needs for himself and his career and his livelihood to be seen as a starting a starting guard, right? But the best thing for him is to come off the bench. I agree 100%. Evan Fournier is a better player, without a doubt. And the thing is, do you know what gets you paid? The one thing overall, uh, greater than anything else in sports, the thing that gets you paid 
is contributing to winning. So if you're a starter and you're contributing to losing, you're not going to get paid as much as that six man that contributes to winning. Or, you know, there's going to be less teams interested in your services. If Mark, Marcus Smart's value comes on his defensive intensity mm -hmm. and his playmaking ability, that three-point shot is a new addition that's sometimes there and it's sometimes not. So being able to say to Smart, here, you're going to play now and you're going to learn to play with Peyton Pritchard. And you being there is going to allow Pritchard to score more because you're there to mop up when he does mm -hmm. make a mistake. If you can excel in that role, teams will view you as a starter and just say, well, the, the guard depth from Boston just meant he was a six-man. But the only way you're going to build that value and get the, the money you believe you, you're, you deserve and you're worth is to contribute to winning at a high level, like he has done for most of his career. At the moment, uh, this game being one of them, I thought that there were stretches where he was really good and he was willing them back into the game. But there was also stretches where he was one of, a big part of the problem, that flop in the fourth being one of them. Six turnovers as well, six turnovers. I thought Marcus did a good job. You know, it, Early in the game, he was keeping us in the game with his drives, aggressive drives to the basket, hit a couple, maybe one or two threes, took that horrible heat check three. Um, but that's one of the games where when Marcus comes out shooting a lot early, he's going to continue shooting. And those are the games where you think, oh, Marcus is going to have 25 shots because he started off shooting a lot. He only took 14 shots, right? So he definitely curbed the amount of shots that he was taking towards the end of the game, which I thought was really good. Um, but yeah, I, I think with Marcus, if you are the heart and soul of the team, you know, if your build is that, obviously you want to start, but you want to do what's best for the squad. And you're right, man. What's best for the squad is to allow Evan Fournier to slide into that starting two role, come off the bench, and still make a great impact in the same amount of minutes, just not getting your name called in the starting lineup. The thing is, if you want to build yourself as the heart, the heart isn't one of the five limbs that you see. You know, it's not one of your primary limbs. The heart is inside. So it's second unit. You know, your organs in your heart are the second unit of your body, your arms, your legs, your toes, your limbs. They're the first unit. So, you know, if you're the heart and soul, then you need to be that six man because that's uh, that, it's secondary. I've just made that up on the spot, so it probably makes no, no sense at all. Um, I like you saying we have five limbs. I like that. Yeah, do you know what? I got five limbs. <laughs> no, do you know what it is? It's um, the art of five limbs. It's a uh, it's tie boxing. The art of five limbs. So okay. whenever I'm speaking about limbs, I'm just like just five, and then I've realised there's way more, and I'm like, okay. Um, plus I'm not a biology student, but yeah, the art of five limbs is um what they call tie boxing. Okay. So I do apologise for my lack of biological um understanding. Gotta <laughs> <laughs> send you but back to anatomy class. Oh, dude, man, I've been out of school for a very long time. But you can Google it. You'll see what I meant. Um, anyway, I do think that Marcus Smart sliding back to that six-man position would be the best option for him. I think it would also be the best option for that second unit defensively. Um, being able to roll out Tristan Thompson and Marcus Smart and that second unit with Aaron Neesmith as well, that's a lot of intensity that you're bringing off the bench. And I think it would help flip games a little bit more. Uh, I feel like we need to touch on Neesmith as well before we look ahead to the next game. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Do we want to mention Carson Edwards' cameo or no? Yeah, we can get there. We can get there. <laughs> I think we just did. I think mentioning it is enough, right? Just like, I understand why they did it. Peyton Pritchard wasn't really having the best impact on the game. 
Uh, it felt like he was going to be tailor-made for this with the way he cuts, the way he moves off ball, the way he likes to find himself in the corners. Um, but it just didn't go that way for him. So I understand why they put Carson in the game. I don't think he was terrible. Uh, yeah. I also don't think he changed the course of things much. But, you know, seeing him get... He's, he's a full-time contract. He's not a two-way guy. So, you know, seeing him get minutes is what you expect when you're paying him a few million dollars a year. Uh, he hit that one free. Then he hit those two free throws. He wasn't awful. I mean, what was his final stat line? Well, yeah, he, so he, he subbed into the game. I think he was the first sub off the bench in the second half, right? He he came in the game before Neesmith. He came in the game before Pritchard. And and I think it was a, either 11 or 14-point game at the time. Immediately, passed with Garden, Duncan, Robinson. They run some split action. They don't. He doesn't communicate with Tatum. Robinson gets a wide-open three. That was like his first defensive possession, right? So... My issue with putting in Edwards there is that right, right there. You know, he he hasn't played starter, you know, starter minutes or you know even bench minutes or even had a role all season. And you throw him out there in a very big moment after we just cut a twenty-six point lead down to twelve, and now you're asking him to guard Duncan Robinson, who's one of the toughest guys to guard off the ball, and he lets up a wide open three. You know, so that's my issue. I get what he brings on the offensive end. The Heat let up a ton of corner threes, and he's a great shooter. He really is. Um, I, I, I liked his energy. I I've always wanted to see just a little bit more Carson Edwards. Cause I think he could be a weapon if utilized correctly, but it, it just didn't make sense to me why you would go to him over Neesmith as the first sub off the bench. I think they took out Kemba in that moment and it just, it just killed me, man. It, it broke my soul. Cause Neesmith, as we're going to talk about in a minute is just the man. I mean, what else can we say about Aaron Neesmith? That dude is balling out. One of the first plays he made today gets that offensive rebound, puts it back up, rips it out of Jimmy Butler's hands, slams into Jimmy Butler's chest <laughs> as he's going back up the court. He's just flying around. He threw uh, Dragic to the ground on a fast break. I just love everything that that kid brings. Man, I, honestly, the way he plays is just ridiculously good. I love it. What I do like is um, I, I keep notes during the games, and the one note that I've wrote down consistently for the last three games in a row is the fact that he's basically a magnet to offensive rebounds and to loose balls. Like He's just always in the right spot. And that's effort because I don't think he's reading the game that much. He's just putting himself in a position to be in that dogfight when an offensive board comes down or in case he can kind of dig on somebody and force them to pick up the ball or get that steal. It's all effort with him. And sometimes it can look scrappy but it's it's effective he's getting under guys skin he's starting to find a rhythm offensively from deep uh we're seeing him attack closeouts more and more uh, i think it was in the first or the second it was in the first he um he attacked a closeout from the corner drove hard adjusted midair and managed to draw the foul uh around by the rim like six months ago you never would have imagined seeing that from neesmith so the developments we're seeing plus the confidence plus the aggression uh he's everything that Celtics fans are going to love and having someone like him on the wing is just like having another Marcus Smart with a higher ceiling in terms of offensive output. So I'm I'm a really, really big fan of Neesmith at the moment. And I think that he's one of the more impactful guys the Celtics have to bring off the bench. And if, you know, the people out there that are wondering, does Adam Taylor actually look at the game objectively or does he stick to his guns and, and, and change, you know, never change his opinion? You're listening to the biggest Romeo uh, Langford guy that I know. And for him to go Aaron Neesmith over Romeo Langford, we'll tell you right there, Adam Taylor watches the game 
and uh, he adjusts his expectations to what he sees. <laughs> to all the people out there that are coming at you, Adam, I got to come to your fence, my man. Adam Taylor knows what he's talking about, and he knows that Aaron Neesmith is balling out. I love watching Aaron Neesmith. Um, he reminds me of young Jalen Brown right now, even the way that JB used to come in and just um, muck things up. You know, I, I, I love that he's doing that on both ends of the court. I like seeing him guard Jimmy Butler a couple times. Jimmy went right through him and scored on him easily. But I was interested because Neesmith has been so physical. I was like, hmm, maybe. Maybe Neesmith is a Jimmy Butler stopper, and he was not the answer. But I like that he wasn't scared. You know, he went right out. He tried to be physical with them, and he and Butler played right through his chest. But that didn't deter Aaron Neesmith, and it didn't break his confidence. He just kept going full speed, kept making the little plays. Um, even that one play, right, uh, toward I mean, as the Celtics were coming back in the second half, there's that weird offensive uh, rebound that was just like sitting there on the court. And there were three people that could have gotten to the ball. I think it was him, Thompson, and a Heat player. And he was the first person to the ball so quickly and laid the ball back in. And I think he even, like, had the court awareness. Tyler Hero came in and tried to block him from behind. And he kind of um, upfaked as he was jumping. And Hero went right by him and laid the ball back in. He has a great nose for the ball. And I like what you said. He does remind me a little bit of Marcus Smart as well. And just when you put him into the game, it's just instant energy. And that's why I agree with you, what you said earlier, man, bringing in Marcus Smart and Aaron Neesmith and Tristan Thompson as a unit, um, that, that could be really, really nice to see. And even if it's Rob Williams, you know, if, if Brad decides I need the consistency of Thompson, I don't know if Rob's going to be there. So I might as well start the guy that I know is going to be there and bring Rob in whenever he's ready. You know, bringing in those three is really nice to see as well. So I, I think Aaron Neesmith, for those of you that are big fans out there, uh, I think he's firmly in the playoff rotation. If Stevens takes him out, then I, I don't know what to tell you because that, that kid is making a difference. He's making an impact, and I love him. I don't think there's a reason you can take him out. I honestly don't know what Brad Stevens' reasoning could be to not play Neesmith at the moment because coming off that bench, he's the guy that you believe he can make a difference. Uh, and that's just the way he's playing at the moment. And I, I get it. Pete players have up moments, hot streaks. And the ones that are really good find a way to turn that into a base level production moving forwards. And some other guys just have these streaky performances. I think that we've seen enough off Neesmith recently to kind of understand that, hey, maybe not right now. And we're probably going to see some regression because of the way development works. But this could end up being what we expect from him on a nightly basis in terms of a base level of production off the bench. I love him. I think he's going to be great. Uh, to the point where I'm not upset that Romeo Langford isn't playing at the moment. Romeo doesn't have the same form of application in terms of that determination to make an impact. Romeo seems like he's more happy to let the game come to him, whereas Neesmith takes the game like takes the game to his opponent. And I think that when you're a team like Boston, where as Brad Stevens keeps saying, you need to fight on every possession, you need to bump and bruise and claw for every piece of success that you're going to get. Neesmith feels like it feels like Neesmith's been listening to that and he's took it very literally. And now he's finding a way, finding out that, hey, this is how I'm going to make an impact as a rookie. This is how I'm going to earn minutes for my sophomore season and a playoff to a playoff uh, run if Boston, you know, have a deep playoff run. And that's looking uh, questionable at the moment, which means we should realistically, before we let these fine people carry on with their day, just take a quick look at Tuesday's game, game two against the exact same team, the Miami Heat, and what we'd like to see more of and less of. So more of is, for me, attack the corners, pressure the, the, the glass, 
because in the second half, what Boston started doing was really pressure the rebounders, the defensive Miami's defensive boardman, and they were forcing second chance opportunities there with some tap outs and some solid board crashing, and just play at pace because once when Boston play fast is when they play well. And when they came out at the beginning of that second half, they wanted to push every possession and they found a bunch of success with it. Yeah, and in terms of more of, for me, I, I need to see a little bit more Peyton Pritchard. He only played eight minutes. I know they weren't very impactful, but he, he's a guy that can make a difference and his gravity at the at the three-point line is going to be you know, it's going to be huge in the playoffs. If we're going to do anything, Peyton Pritchard has to have a role shooting from three. Eight minutes out of Peyton Pritchard is not enough. Um, I I think I would like to see Jalen Brown. <laughs> Jalen Brown is, is injured right now with his ankle. I was hoping to see a little JB today. Um, but if we don't see JB, I would rather have him fully healthy for their, even if it's the playing game, I'd rather have a healthy JB um, than, than anything else because we saw what happened with Rob Williams. Rob Williams went in the game for 11 minutes today and he couldn't go. Couldn't go. He, he wasn't horrible out there, but I think the Celtics realized that right now they need to make sure that he's healthy if we're going to make it make an impact so i would like to see jb more of jb but if if they decide his ankle the health of his ankle is more important i'm cool with that yeah me too i feel like brad stevens has said this for a while and i'm completely on board with what he's saying uh, you do not prioritize fitness for seeding because when you get through that seeding you need the fitness anyway so it's better off to let guys recuperate from whatever injuries they've got so when you do get to the playing tournament or to the playoffs there's no excuses there from players you know unless they obviously pick up an injury during those games uh, mm -hmm. defensively i want to see more um more execution more intent on switches and definitely some better closeouts we saw some good closeouts in the second half of that game but in the first half they were very lackluster felt like guys were getting to people as they were releasing the ball rather than trying to affect that line of sight during the rise up to reach the apex and release that shot so i'd want i, I just it's all for me down to execution and intent on that defensive end and those two things are what what um what develop pressure and ball pressure is by executing with high intent and uh just looking to really get guys hurried up. Don't let them get comfortable. Don't let them find a rhythm. Constantly make your presence known and just frustrate the life out of them and make them make some mistakes and then get out and run. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. The teams are just way too comfortable when they come in and play the Celtics. I don't know what it is if, if they literally don't feel the physicality because we don't play physically or if they come in and they're like, oh, the Celtics, everyone has a good game against the Celtics, so I am too. Let's go for 70. Three out of the last five games, Adam, we've let up 70 points in the first half of the game. That's ridiculous. So we need to come out and just like let teams feel our physicality. Um, I, I think that it, it's going to start on the perimeter, as you said. I don't know if I can point a finger at one person. It has to be a collective job. And I, I think that the Celtics win the game. I don't know if we're going to get into predictions here, but I think the Celtics come out and actually win the game on Tuesday. And just so people know, every single time I've predicted a Celtics victory this year, it, it hasn't happened. <laughs> but maybe this is the one that actually goes our way. I just I, I think that the Celtics figured something out in the second half there. And what they figured out is that they need to play hard. And we didn't play hard in the first half of the game. So if we play hard and we're physical, um, we're, we're going to allow the Heat. We're not going to allow the Heat to be comfortable. And if you allow a team like the Heat to be comfortable, that allows all of the supporting cast to play well. You know, if Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo are going to beat us, fine. But, like, we we got to play physical so that Duncan Robinson can't go off for however many points he had today. Uh, Tyler Hero can't 
get, you know, feel comfortable coming off those screens. Uh, so that, that's what I'm looking for. It's super physical and, and make the heat, um, you know, kind of get into the mud with us. Yeah. And I wrote about my, that in my article on Sunday, um, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo are terrible three-point shooters. So what you do is you limit their scorers. You limit Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, Trevor Ariza, and then you force Bam and Jimmy to beat you from two. And with the firepower Boston's got, that should never go well for Miami. It's, but it's much easier said than done just because of the off-ball actions that Miami run. And the fact they run kind of like a, a, pr- a principled freelance offense. So it is tough to contain because of the movement that they have, but it's definitely within Boston's reach. Um, this is probably the worst defensive team we've seen in the Brad Stevens era. So hopefully he's chewing these guys out right now. And we'll know more Tuesday, and then we'll be back later in the week to discuss exactly what went down there anyway. Uh, so I think I think we're good to just let everybody know where they can find us, Greg, and then obviously Black Sheep Optimists will lead us out of the show. Uh, if you have been listening, please leave that five-star review. If you don't want to leave a review, please use word of mouth. Tell your friends and family. They'll love us. So, you know, we're, we're cool people. And I'll catch you again on Wednesday. Greg, where can they find you at, bro? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Manikis or Manikis, however you want to pronounce it, music. So it's M-A-N-E-I-K-I-S underscore music. And on Twitter, I'm at Mini Minnow, M-I-N-I-M-I-N-O-E. And you can find my music, uh, Black Sheep Optimist, three words, at Black Sheep Optimist, plural. And with that, we'll let the Black Sheep Optimists lead us out of the show. Greg, it's been a pleasure, my guy. You're the man, dude. Ain't disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your opinion Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless every time I lay a verse down One play at a time, keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the majors, still he chased greatness Expected that he might fail, and I might too I might never get to pop champagne, celebrating with the crew This ain't everything I am, it's something that I do